Welcome to the Tech Rides Podcast, where we feature inspiring stories of entrepreneurship from top business leaders while riding in a cool car. I'm your host, Edwin Martial. If you would like to see the videos and cool cars we feature on the show, sign up and watch at techrides.io. Tech Rides, smart people, sweet rides, where industry leaders ride shotgun. Today we are talking with Dr. Cami Abernathy, Dean of the University of Florida's College of Engineering. Dr. Abernathy has been the Dean of the University of Florida's College of Engineering since 2009, when she became the university's first female dean in its 150 plus year history. Dr. Abernathy graduated from MIT in 1980 and obtained a master's and PhD degree from Stanford University. Her background is in materials science and engineering. We will talk to Dean Abernathy about the University of Florida's response to COVID-19 and their plans for the fall semester. We will also discuss UF's move up the national rankings, the College of Engineering's new artificial intelligence initiative, the goal of improving diversity in engineering, and even talk a little Gator football. Hi everyone, welcome to Tech Rides. We're doing something a little different today. This is our first ever Tech Ride Zoom. And I've got a really special guest I'm excited to talk with today. I'm here with Dr. Cami Abernathy, the Dean of the University of Florida's College of Engineering. Uh, Dean Abernathy graduated from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, in 1980. She followed that up by uh, getting a master's degree and a PhD from Stanford University. And she's been the Dean at the University of Florida's College of Engineering since 2009. And she's also the first female dean of the college, if I understand correctly. And I'm really happy to have her here. Dr. Abernathy, welcome to Tech Rides. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be here. This is uh, really an honor for me because, uh, you know, I'm a graduate of the College of Engineering. Uh, so uh, it's really fun to get a chance to talk to you. How, how are you doing? How, how's everything going? First of all, let's start with that. Great. Uh, you know, we had to very, in a very short period of time, move everything online, our classes and everyone's working remotely and it's going amazingly well. I'm really impressed that the, uh, the uh, caliber of work that our folks have done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk a lot about that because I'm, I'm interested to hear about the response to, to COVID-19 since that's broken out and, and what you guys are planning to do in, in, the, in the fall for your students. But uh, first of all, let me ask you, are you a car person at all? Well, I like cars, but I wouldn't say I'm a car expert. Yeah, no, that's okay. You, Functionality of cars. Yeah, because I still want to get down there and do a uh, a ride with you, a real an in-person one. You know, um, even though this is kind of fun, this is the first ever Zoom uh, tech rides, but but um, I would like to do one in person. So, what, what if if we were doing a car? You have any car in mind that you would, if you could pick anything, what would it be? A '67 Mustang. Oh, that's an awesome choice. That yeah, is a, I, mean, I, I have a 67 Mustang, but it doesn't run, so. What? Really? Was, uh, my family's we, car. We gotta get that running. We, we gotta, <laughs> I uh, wish. We gotta get it running, because that, that's, a, that's a, I love, I love like the, the vintage uh, muscle cars from the 60s, late 60s, like the, the Mustangs and the, the, yeah. the Corvettes and stuff, they're, they're awesome. Um, one of our first cars on Tech Rise, the first car we ever filmed actually was a 65 Mustang convertible. Mm, that's a classic. Yeah, yeah, it's a forest green, really cool. Mm. But um, it's blue bonnet blue. Oh, that's that's great. You have pictures of this car? Somewhere, yeah. It was the only car we had when I was growing up. I'll have to find that car. Yeah. So, you, wait, so you have the car still, or you used to have it? Yeah, it's in storage. 
Oh, okay. Well, you, we got to, when I come back, is it in Gainesville? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I got to, I got to see this car. <laughs> Great. Maybe get some tips on who could restore it for me. The car behind me, it's a 2015 Porsche 911. And I figured I'd put it back there because it's a Gator Blue. So, you know. Perfect. I love it. It's a beautiful car. Yeah. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit about your background. I know that you, you started out, your background is in material science engineering, right? So mm -hmm. That's correct. You, you got your undergrad and your master's and like, how did you go from all, you know, your schooling and all your impressive degrees at MIT and Stanford to becoming the dean at the University of Florida for college engineering? Well, when I was an undergrad, I did a internship at Bell Labs in New Jersey, and it was on some compound semiconductor synthesis, and I just loved it. And that changed the course of my life forever. So I'm a big proponent of internships as being important for students in their undergraduate years. That convinced me to go to graduate school. I went to Stanford, worked in electronic materials, then Bell Labs hired me back after I graduated from Stanford. And I worked there for eight and a half years. Uh, really got a chance to do a lot of research, work with some great people. I met my husband there. But as AT&T began to sort of dissolve after divestiture, we decided it would be a good time to move back to academia. So, uh, University of Florida had a very good material science program. My husband had visited there before. We got in touch with some folks, and next thing you know, we were living at Gainesville, Florida. That that's great. I I you know I remember taking uh, materials a materials course at UF uh, when I was there. I was you know so full disclosure. I, so I attended UF. I got my you know I I had kind of a little bit of a tumultuous uh, career there at my time there, I, even though I loved it, but I, I you know, I, I, I couldn't decide on what I wanted to major in. I was pre-med, I was, I was nothing, then I was pre-med, then I was mechanical engineering. Uh, didn't do too well there. I ended up dropping out for a year. I was on academic probation before. So I did all that, then I finally decided that, you know, computer science was my thing. I went back to school, got my degree in computer engineering, but, but I remember taking that materials course. I remember there was a, there was a professor, and I don't know if you would know this but there was a there was a guy there called gator his and that was he was a electrical engineer mr gator that's right he was actually a mechanical engineer i think he taught thermal yeah because he was notorious i mean it was pretty amazing that this guy's name was professor gator and he was at university of florida and he had the most notorious reputation because i think everybody took his class like on average like three times before they, they passed <laughs> I've, I've heard stories about that class. It was, it was infamous as being the weed out class for the College yeah, of Engineering. It was the definition when, and I think of a weed out class, and I never even took this class. I just heard about it. Everybody just mm -hmm. talked about it, because if you were in engineering, you knew about this class. Were you at UF working before you became dean? I was. I was a faculty member for 10 years in the material science department, and I did teach 3010 intro oh, to materials. Okay, you did. All right. Uh, then I was associate dean for academic affairs in the college for five years and then became dean in 2009. Cool, cool. I'm kind of proud because I know that UF has done a lot of work. And I mean, UF has always been a great school, but in the last few years, it's really increased its at least national standing. Like I think it was ranked number seven in 2020 by US News in, mm -hmm. in terms of top public universities in, in the country. Um, it's up there with UCLA and Michigan and University of Virginia and Georgia Tech here in Atlanta where I am. So 
that's pretty impressive. The third year in a row in the top 10. Is, I know it's been kind of a concerted effort to get UF in the, in the top 10 rankings, right? And to keep moving up those rankings, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. And the, the thing about the rankings is it's a, it's a validation of what I think we've all known for some time, that UF is a preeminent institution. If you look at the impact that our graduates have, and not just in the Southeast, but, but globally, clearly UF has been a, a premier institution for a long time, but now the rankings are there to sort of validate that and, and convince the rest of the world what we've known for a long time. Right, right. And there has been a concerted effort to try to improve some of the metrics that are in the rankings, in part because they're the right things for us to do. Reducing class sizes and reducing the student to faculty ratio all enhance the quality of education. Growing research is good for the country, for the state, uh, for the public. So a lot of the things that we've done to improve the rankings were actually done because they're the right things to do. Right. And then the great thing about UF, which is, I mean, I think it's always been a, a tremendous school uh, and a competitive school, um, but it's always been a really great value. Like it's one mm -hmm. of the more, more affordable, uh, probably I would guess in the top 10, it's probably the most affordable school in that top 10. I believe we have the lowest tuition of any school in the AAU. Uh, we have more than half of our students graduate with no debt. Um, we're very fortunate that the state of Florida has given us the resources to keep our tuition low and keep our students as debt-free as possible. So it is a tremendous value. Yeah. Find that with Bright Futures and it's unbeatable. Yeah, that's great. Especially considering that, you know, so many students graduate with huge debt. I think the average is, I don't know, $40,000 or something like that. So that's... I mean, to have that many, you know, half, I think you said half the students have zero debt on graduation. That's really, that's really. Mm -hmm. And when you combine the fact that UF grads tend to get pretty good salaries, you compare that to the cost of their education, the ROI for UF is outstanding. But in spite of all that, even though we're a very selective schools getting harder and harder to get in, we still provide access to uh, a lot of low-income students. In fact, roughly 30% of our students are Pell Grant recipients, which are some of the lowest income students. So we feel like the fact that we have a low tuition enables students to access UF who have a lot of talent, but not a lot of resources. Right. So and let's talk about that a little. So diversity, I know, I think is one thing you've been, you've been um, wanting to make sure that that is considered and improved on, on the campus and making sure you get low-income students, uh, you know, uh, especially in College of Engineering, you know, which isn't usually represented by a lot of women. So you want to get more women in the, in the, in the engineering college, uh, more minorities. What, what have you done? What has the school done? What has the college done to, to enable that? That's a great question. Well, it starts with the faculty, because if we have a diverse faculty, we'll attract a more diverse student body and they'll feel more comfortable being in our college as well. So we focus a lot on casting a wide net looking for talent, and we have found some amazing faculty. The bottom line is we've been able to recruit great people, but we've also been able to recruit a diverse mix of people, so that now almost a quarter of our tenured tenure track faculty are women. Uh, we've doubled the number of black faculty in the college. We've uh, increased the number of Hispanic faculty in the college. So now we are one of the most diverse large colleges of engineering in the country. In fact, certain categories, we lead the country. We have more black female engineering faculty than any other engineering college in the country, including the HBCUs. We had another fantastic hiring year this year. We hired 19 tenure track faculty. 14 of them were women. That's never happened to us before. So really excited about, about the interest that really talented people 
have in coming to the University of Florida. That's, that's excellent. That's really fantastic. Let's talk about, you know, kind of the elephant in the room. Everybody's thinking about this these days. COVID-19, the coronavirus, you know, uh, everybody's wondering, like, what's going to happen with the universities? Um, you know, uh, I heard that, so, you know, some, some colleges in, in, in California have said they're not going to have uh, in-person student students in, on campus. Some have said they're going to have students on campus. I think Notre Dame and Boston College have stated recently that they're going to have students on campus. Some of them are adjusting their schedules or saying like we're going to have students come earlier than normal and then they're going to try to finish up by Thanksgiving to try to avoid what everybody's worried about is this fall kind of resurgence. Um, what What's the plan at, at UF? What, what are you thinking is going to happen? At this point in time, it looks like we will have students back on campus. Um, unless something changes between now and the next couple of months, we plan to have the students back on campus. We've already had a number of students on campus who are conducting research related to COVID-related uh, issues uh, over the summer and, and since March, but the rest of the students will be coming back in the fall. Departments are working on plans for how we can utilize social distancing and appropriate safety measures so that when we do bring students back, we can do it as safely as possible, both for the students and for the instructors. We're particularly trying to make sure that we maintain that co-curricular piece that is so important, particularly in Gator Engineering, the things that students do outside of the traditional classroom that prepare them for success in the real world. These are some of our student competition teams and student design teams and maker spaces. So we're working on how we can continue to deliver those same kind of skill building exercises in a world where we have to be more cognizant of space. Yeah, I think you kind of have a little bit of a, a tougher challenge in a way in the College of Engineering because a lot of your course material is dependent on lab work and people doing projects together and being close together. Mm -hmm. How are you planning to handle that? By focusing most of our attention on those hands-on skills, as it turns out, a lot of our lectures have been gradually moving to an online format anyway, and that frees up the classroom time to do more of the experiential component, which is what I would argue is uh, one of the hallmarks of a quality engineering program, giving students opportunities to utilize their skills together as a team in pursuit of a goal or a design or, or a prototype. So we're focusing a lot of attention on how can we continue to deliver that experiential component, the labs, et cetera, and not worry as much about the lecture content because so much of that's been moving online anyway. So we'll probably put even more of that online, but then spend the face-to-face -face time with students on the experiential parts. What about, how, how is the digital learning working? Like was UF prepared when, I mean, I know actually, I, I know that UF has done a lot of like online learning going, leading into this before uh, COVID-19, but, but how well prepared was it at scale to handle all of your students going back home and, and doing online courses? All things considered, I think UF fared remarkably well because we already have a lot of distance learning programs on campus. So we had a lot of the infrastructure that you need to put videos and demos and things like that online. We had the video servers, et cetera. We had the cameras. Um, so I think we did remarkably well. I think we'll do an even better job in the fall to put some of that content online. Um, we have a, a lot of faculty who are interested in using some new teaching tools. I mean, a lot of folks had never really used Zoom before this. 
And now we're finding that participation in office hours is higher when you use Zoom versus face-to-face. -face. Right. Attendance at lectures is actually higher when you use Zoom than when they're face-to-face. -face. So I think we're finding that there are actually some benefits from using some of these digital communications tools that we hadn't anticipated. Right. I know I, I do some lectures uh, a couple of times a year at, at Georgia Tech guest lectures. And I know when I go in there, a lot of students are already on their laptops anyway, or on mm -hmm. their phones. Uh, it's kind of the way of the world today. So it, it isn't too different. <laughs> like now it's like, you're just going to, everybody's got on their laptop. Um, like, do you have any ways to measure the effectiveness of, of the online teaching? And, or, you know, are, do you have surveys you're getting from students? Or are you getting, like, what are the professors telling you? Sure. So we do, uh, student course evaluations every semester in every class and so we're monitoring those and we actually have a task force looking at those surveys talking to students individually to come back and say okay what do we need to do differently in the fall that will improve the experience for the students sometimes it, the the biggest issue that I've heard repeatedly so far is how do you proctor exams how do you do online exams all of the proctoring strategies have pros and cons. So I think that's still the area where we've got to work out. And frankly, I think it's going to drive us to do more of what I used to experience a lot of, of open book type tests. And I think those are actually better for, for the students. It's a better assessment of their learning and it actually prepares them for the, for the real world in a better way than a timed multiple choice test does. Right. So be seeing fewer proctored exams and more sort of thoughtful, longer take-home types of project-based exams. In terms of technology, you mentioned Zoom. Was that Zoom already kind of one of the tools you were using? And what are some of the other tools that, that the school campus has been using to, to kind of do the distance learning? We were very fortunate. We had a, a large Zoom license for the campus, a number of Zoom licenses for the campus. And some of us had dabbled with it some, not nearly as much as we're using it now, but we had some experience. Some faculty are using Slack to communicate, particularly with their research groups. That's a popular one. Microsoft Teams is another one that a lot of folks are using. We have a great course management system called Canvas. And so we already had an electronic learning system. So that was already in place and that uh, every course has to have a Canvas website. And so students were already accessing syllabi and assignments and things like that through right. their Canvas shell. So that was already there. So that's been very helpful. UF is a major research uh, university, and, and, and I know with Shans there, you, you, there's a lot of medical research and the teaching hospital. And, and I saw, I think, one of the researchers from UF on CNN talking about um, the work that they're doing around coronavirus. Are you familiar with any of that work? Actually, there have been a significant number of faculty and students who've continued to do COVID-related research during this whole period of time. In almost every college, I would say. In our college, we've had a number of faculty working on diagnostic technologies. We've had some faculty working on uh, air quality monitoring projects. Um, one, of the, one of our faculty, I'll just mention this one example, it's a really good one. He's been working on a sort of paper-based quick test for COVID, and it looks very promising. It, uh, provides a, an answer in 15 minutes. Uh, it's relatively cheap. Obviously, now they're going to have to go through FDA approval and things like that. It's based on CRISPR technology. He's a fairly new faculty member. We just hired in the last couple of years. His name is Piyush Jain. And it's just one example of, one, the inventiveness of our faculty, two, their dedication to trying to solve problems, which is what 
inherently all engineers want to do, and the, the ability to do really interdisciplinary work at a place like UF. You know, he's working with folks in uh, multiple engineering departments. He's working with folks in the health sciences. So it's possible to do things very quickly on a campus like UF because all the disciplines are there and all the people are there. And it's a very collaborative culture, which also helps. The Associate Dean for Research in our college, Dr. Forrest Masters, has been spearheading a fairly large group who've been using a variety of technologies, one of them being 3D printing, to help address shortages or prepare materials for the future. And so one project they're working on now, actually they're working with a local company called Exactech, is to use our 3D printers to print swabs for testing. So a lot of the tests that students will be getting in the fall may come from swabs printed by uh, 3D print, UF 3D printers. They've also been printing, there's a group printing masks, there's a local startup uh, that's working with our faculty to uh, produce uh, some masks. There was a ventilator project trying to uh, build ventilators to increase the supply in case there was a, a spike in cases. Amazing what you can do with a 3D printer. I would never have thought of nasal swabs yeah. as something that 3D printers could bring. Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty interesting. I heard our, that uh, UF is creating, you know, speaking of new emerging technologies, um, there's a new artificial intelligence center that's being created. Yeah, if you, if you look at where the future's going, it's clear that artificial intelligence is going to be a major factor in every single discipline, not just engineering and computer science, but journalism, the humanities, history, healthcare, agriculture, AI is transforming almost every sector. Obviously, UF is the kind of place that can play a major role in adoption of these kinds of tools. And it's important that we prepare our graduates for a world in which those tools are gonna to be essential to their success as a professional. So the provost has launched what he calls AI University. And the idea is to embed AI across the entire curriculum as a, as a start. We are in the college working on an introductory class that could be taken by every single student in the university, not just engineers. It's called Fundamentals of AI. It's part of a certificate that will be offered so that students in any discipline can uh, develop a certain level of proficiency in artificial intelligence. It would also include some education around the ethics of AI and the inherent biases in AI so that students are not only informed consumers, but they're also cognizant of the limitations of some of these technologies, which is really important as we think of, uh, about how they're gonna be used going forward. We're also upgrading our infrastructure around AI. Uh, over the next several months, you'll be seeing a series of announcements from UF uh, that in partnership with one of our alums is going to make our supercomputing center one of the most comprehensive AI supercomputers uh, among any university in the country. And then the third piece of this is the provost is committed to hiring 100 new faculty in the field of AI and its applications. These all will be in engineering and computer science. They'll be across the campus. But it's a reflection of how important we view AI to the future of, of society and how important it is that UF be at the forefront of this coming transformation. Yeah, I think what, what, what I like about that is that it's not just going to be in the College of Engineering or, or in, in computer science, but really you're going to expand it and make it available to all your students. And I think that's going to be critical because, like you said, it's going to impact every industry and every discipline over, you know, the next several years, if not decades. So 
um, it's something it's it's important that that everybody's prepared for that. Is there a new building also that's being built? At there is the the data science and information technology building, which will be on the parking lot between Rights Union and the Benton Larson complex. This building will be about 65% College of Engineering. It'll house computer science, part of electrical and computer engineering. It'll house our AI initiative in the college, uh, some folks in robotics. It'll house some of our student groups, some of our maker spaces. We're gonna have an AI maker space and a VR maker space. And we'll have um, two other colleges there as well, pharmacy and medicine. We'll both have some of their bioinformatics folks there. The Informatics Institute will be there. It's gonna be a pretty spectacular building, well over 200,000 square feet. Uh, very modern design, very open to promote collaboration. So we're pretty excited about that. And that I call that the, the HQ of AI University. That sounds great. When is that going to be ready? Well, we're working on the design right now. So we're going to break ground in December and we should be able to take occupancy in spring of 2023. Right, right. I know that's one thing when I was uh, on campus, it seemed like there was constant construction. There was always, always a new building. Uh, or two or three or, or several being built on campus. And I, when I was there, the, the, the computer, or CISE, I think it was the building that was a computer information sciences building. Mm -hmm. And that was a pretty new building then with the French, French fries outside. That's right. That's the, building. the computer science building, or is it still part of the, the, the computer program, or is that moved well, out something else? Um, computer science right now is still in that building. After they move to the new building, we'll, we'll keep some of that space there to provide more student labs and more student engagement space because enrollment in computer science continues to increase pretty significantly. That's interesting. Like you, I was going to, one of the questions, so I have a, you mentioned how important internships are, especially in, in engineering. And, and I have an intern actually helping me to start a couple of weeks ago here at Tech Rides and he, he attends USC or University of South Carolina. So not Florida, but still SEC, but he's a mm -hmm. son of a dear friend and co former colleague from my ICE days. But he, he one of the questions he asked, I, I asked that, you know, since you're a student now, he's, I think he's uh, going into his sophomore year. I asked him to send me some questions he might have for you. And one of them was what have, you know, have you seen an increase or what increase have you seen in, in engineering studies and particularly computer science studies over the years? Well, our enrollment at the undergraduate level has gone from a little over 4,000 to well over 7,000 uh, since I, since not too long before I became dean. So probably about the last 10, 15 years. What you've seen at a lot of universities is computer science is cannibalizing the traditional engineering disciplines in terms of enrollment. So you see enrollments in civil and some other disciplines, chemical shrinking. That hasn't really been the case in our college. The other disciplines have pretty much stayed the same or grown some. Hmm, interesting. Science is growing faster than all of them. So, uh, you know, as long as the demand from employers is there, we'll continue to allow the enrollment to grow as long and as long as we can provide a high quality uh, education, um, we'll continue to allow that to expand. We are now about 20% of the university uh, in terms of enrollment. Wow. Uh, computer science just this past year became our highest enrollment department. So going back to AI, you know, one of the concerns around AI is that um, there's a lot of projections how it's going to displace uh, the jobs in the future and in almost every area you can imagine, you know, it's the, the next trend or the next, the next evolution of automation that we've seen um, 
and and even even to the point of like we're talking about computer science even at the point where you know i've read a lot of people say that you know uh software will write itself and so mm -hmm. there won't be a need to write for software engineers because we'll have computers writing it which which by the way i will say that uh one of the worst pieces of advice i ever heard was when i was uh started our company when we we're working our our company ice uh and this is like late 90s, we had an advisor, we were a small startup. And I remember one of the advisors telling us around months that he was encouraging his son not to go into computer science because soon it will all be automated and be, you'll be able to, you know, uh, anyone be able to write code with just tools. And this is, he was talking about like UI tools and these other kind of, you know, mm -hmm. uh, that was, um, you know, 20, 20 something years ago. And mm -hmm. since then it's probably been the biggest explosion of the demand for computer science and engineers that you can ever imagine. So pretty bad advice back then. So I, 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 <laughs> I, I, I'm really, and I really do doubt this whole notion of software will be writing itself uh, anytime soon. But um, what, what are your thoughts on just the, the general trend of AI taking jobs? Well, it's certainly true that uh, technology does force people to change their skill sets. If you go back in time, we don't have that many mechanical draftsmen anymore. Uh, I think you'll see something similar as, as the world moves forward in various areas of technology. But you never, for every job that's destroyed, there's at least as many that are created. They just require different skill sets. So the focus should be on reskilling and upskilling our workforce, not eliminating parts of our workforce. We still need the the workers. We just need them to have maybe slightly different skills. I do think the next couple of decades, and you're already beginning to see this when you talk to employers, there's going to be a real emphasis placed on constantly upgrading your skills. And I tell uh, students this all the time, even after you graduate, you're not done learning. And the people who will be successful are the ones who do that. The more you learn new things, the more valuable you'll be to your employer and the more successful you'll be. I think that's probably always been true, but I think it's going to be even more so true now. I think AI is is definitely, I think the, the, the move that you're making in the school towards AI is, is excellent. I think AI is, is going to be, it's already a tremendous power. So you're seeing, I mean, today where you really see AI is in things like image recognition, you know, mm -hmm. self-driving cars, uh, you know, voice recognition, things like Alexa and from Amazon. Um, but but we're still seeing the limitations, at least today, in that, you know, even look at this COVID-19 thing, like, where has AI come into play in any significant way? I mean, it really hasn't. And part of that is because the data has got to be really good and we haven't had really great data. So we can't, right. if we had better data, I think we could probably do a lot better things with it. And, but the data is so unreliable to this point. But, but you've seen the limitation in that, where is the result? And part of that also is that the focus has been on, you know, on, you know, I think one of the reasons people are going to the computer science so much is because they've seen the success of things like social media, Facebook, Instagram, you know, when, when eight guys develop Instagram in a year and a half and sell it for a billion dollars, that's going to drive, it's going to get a lot of attention. Right. Um, so I think we need to see more attention on these bigger engineering problems, these bigger issues, which is nice, which is why it's great to hear that, that you know, even though there's been an increase in computer science at, at UF, which is obviously near and dear to my heart, it's nice to hear that all these other disciplines in engineering are still um, are still going strong. One of my best friends, by the way, is, is uh, my old roommate, was a, is a chemical engineer, 
graduate from UF and he's worked at Chevron for 30 years now. Um, but so it's, it's just good to hear that, that there's this, and that, that it's nice to hear also that there's a more interdisciplinary approach uh, mm -hmm. to all these, all the engineering uh, functions. And I will tell you where I think AI is really going to blossom in the next decade is going to be in these other domains. You're seeing now AI tools or, or just digital tools in general being adopted in things like construction and civil engineering design. I think there's going to be an opportunity to really transform the way we have done some traditional engineering uh, over the next decade or, or two. And that's not necessarily displacing people. That's making them more productive and more effective. In fact, you hear a lot of people, instead of talking about artificial intelligence, they talk about augmented intelligence. It doesn't replace the person. It helps them to be more effective and more productive. One of the things that I think about a lot, uh, and I started thinking about when I, you know, when I was CTO at my former company, ISIN, interviewed tons of people, hired a lot of people. And after a while, pretty early on, I discovered that, you know, resumes weren't very valuable anymore. People would put all kinds of skills on there they really have, you know, it didn't really matter. I would, I, would, I would interview people and I would, you know, discover that, you know, somebody who didn't have a degree or maybe had a history major background was a better software engineer than someone who had a master's degree in, in computer science. So mm -hmm. um, what, what that has led me to, believe over the years is that you know it's and we figured it out then too is that we we're hiring and recruiting is that it's really to me became about the skills like we needed to figure out and figure out how to how to interview and test for skills and actual what you know versus what is on a paper or what your degree says or where you went to school um, and I would just kind of take all of that with a big grain of salt and I would, would put we'd put people through this little gauntlet of tests and interviews to figure out let's find out what you really know and, mm -hmm. and I think that more than ever now, when I think about, you know, the demand, you, you mentioned how the demand in, in, in for, for engineering, particularly computer science degrees is, is huge because in the last I checked, I think seven out of top, the top 10 uh, highest paying majors, most in-demand majors were computer science related. So that's fueled this huge demand. And as a result, you're getting things like, you know, uh, Coursera and Udemy. Mm -hmm. And all these different platforms that are that are offering, you know, uh, skills-based training, uh, mm -hmm. boot camps that have come have been developed over the last few years to deliver, you know, okay, learn how to code in six months or a few mm -hmm. months or whatever. Um, and some of those are still evolving, and there's some problems with that. But but I think that the basic premise there is that, you know, they're 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 saying, well, we can get the skills developed in these in these in folks sooner, cheaper, faster, and more targeted to what employers are looking for, whether it be, you know, software development, cybersecurity, you know, these really big in-demand skill sets. Whereas, you know, at a university, it's okay, it's been four years, a lot of theory, there's labs, and, you know, and, and, it's, and it's amazing, and don't get me wrong, I love my time at UF, I think it's fantastic, and I think it's a super valuable, and it's a, but, you know, just kind of challenging you, how does a UF, mm -hmm look at those the, this new evolving you know kind of ecosystem and sure. there's competition how do you how do you think that schools and universities yeah. will adapt so I, I would say two things first of all the the university should be preparing students not just for their first job but their third fourth and fifth jobs so we want them to be successful certainly when they enter the marketplace but we also want to give them the ability to learn to reskill to, to think critically so that they can adapt to whatever the world looks like 10, 15, 20, 25 years after they graduate. 
some of these other venues, they're really training you for a very narrow first job. It, there's not the emphasis on some of the other skills that are important if you want to be, if you want to have a successful career. And there's a difference between having a successful job and having a successful career. The other thing I will say is that, and we say this repeatedly, content's everywhere. You're right, content is in Coursera, Udacity, Khan Academy, you can get it anywhere. What you can't get is the experience. The experience of using that content, the experience of working with others, the experience of being mentored by an expert in that field. And that's what we're trying to focus on, the experiential component. And when I talk to employers, that's what they look for on students' resumes. Everybody can get the basic skills from the lectures, but who's had the ability to use that content and show that they can actually design something or, or uh, create something or break something? And also the ability to lead, to work in teams, uh, ethical practice, all the things, all the soft skills that I'm quite certain are equally important now to the technical skills. Those are the kind of things that we believe that we can provide in a, in a different kind of environment than you can get with online, purely online instruction from a place like Coursera. Remember sitting in one classroom, might have been a you know, early first for freshman chemistry classroom or something like that with you know, a couple of hundred students in an auditorium. And I remember this, the professor saying that, you know, we're not here to teach you any specific this or that or skill, but we're here to teach you how to think. And that really resonated with me. And I think about that statement all the time. And, you know, even then I remember just stopping and being like, okay, what does that mean? And, what, and, and I think that's really part of what you're saying is, you know, there's a, and I do think, I, I do agree, there is a difference. I mean, I think when these boot camps first came out, uh, first of all, I think their structure was a little bit wrong. They, like any new endeavor, they've had to figure it out. But, but um, six months is probably too short. Three months is definitely too short for someone to really prepare somebody for a job. But what you really get um, when you, you go to somewhere like University of Florida, like you were saying, you're going to get this bigger foundation of theory and understanding and things like algorithms that you're not going to really necessarily get in mm -hmm. boot camp. Uh, things like you know data structures and really understanding design and how things fit together and working with other people. You know, I remember that when I when I got my computer science degree, one of the, the best parts was working with other students and learning how to like work as a team and put things together and do different roles and lead and manage and you know work with other people. And that that's really um, tremendously valuable, which is going to be kind of your challenge now um, in this new world, at least for the fall uh, with COVID-19. Yeah, but we're going to maintain that component of our education. Some of it will be done virtually, but some of it has always been done virtually. And in fact, employers are telling me now because they have remote workforces, they want our students to be able to manage teams virtually. So I think there'll be an important aspect to their education. But we are going to have, we are going to continue to have face-to-face uh, -face experiential activities. So that, that will not go away. Right. So I want to ask you another question from my intern, Kush, and he, he was asking, you know, as a, somebody preparing for college or for engineering, what, what curriculum do you think is most important? What kind of courses are most valuable when you're like in high school or getting ready to think about, you know, a, a degree in engineering? Well, calculus obviously is very important. You got to have the, the math. Um, it's, it helps if you've taken calculus in high school. It's not a killer if you haven't, but it definitely helps. It helps if you've taken chemistry. You know, the one class that seems to trip people up the most is chemistry. I don't know if it's because chemistry is not a particularly well-taught subject globally, or if it's because most students have not had it 
for a couple of years by the time they go to college. They take it earlier in their high school. In any case, that seems to be the one class that trips people up the most. Um, statistics is an incredibly valuable uh, math skill set. And if you can get some stats education, I don't know that it's emphasized enough in high school, but boy, is statistics a valuable tool now. Especially with data analytics and, and machine learning. Absolutely. Uh, AI. I mean, that's one class that I wish I would have paid more attention to back then. Mm -hmm. I think you're going to find more and more over time, there'll be less emphasis on things like Calc 3 and more emphasis on things like statistics and linear algebra, but most high schools don't have linear algebra. So I would say focus on the, on the math, the calculus, uh, chemistry is another one. If you can you know, get some solid grounding in that, you won't struggle quite as much in your first chem class. Statistics is another one. Programming is a, is a good thing to have. Um, it's amazing to me, you see these kids coming in now with such variability in their coding skills. You have some that have never coded anything and you have some that code every day for something. So I would encourage students, even if it's just in an after school club, get a little practice coding because you will have to do computer programming if you're going to be an engineer. And so the sooner right. you start, the better you are. And, and you know, what's shocking to me is I, I took my first computer programming course in a, as a summer program that I was put into when I was like 13 or 14 years old in, in Miami, Florida in the 80s. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so not, not, you know, not your hotbed of uh, technology, right? But, you know, and, and to me, it's really surprising that computer science is not being taught in high school today. Like it, I think every kid in America could put, could benefit from having at least one year of computer science or two, ideally two or three in their senior, in their, or in their, um, high school years because it's such a fundamental skill now for just about any job, even if it's, even if you're not an engineer, even if you don't end up being a software, mm -hmm. it's probably another 15 to 20 disciplines that are related. But even if you end up being in sales there's so many sales roles uh, for mm -hmm. example, and business that are related to software companies. And so having that background is going to help you. And, um, and the other thing is exposure. I mean, we talked a little about diversity. I think one of the biggest things that, keeps women out of you know computer science for example or minorities is they don't even know that they like it they might think that it's mm -hmm. all a lot of math which it's it is some math is definitely helpful but when i when i think of computer science it's really a lot of logic you know it's logic it's you know, how to break down a problem how to organize a problem how to think you know through things and put it together uh how to create something how to build something it's really creative like and so i think having kids exposed to that side of it younger is going to prepare them better for any just about any job but it might also they might realize hey this i, I like this and i i like it and i'm gonna this is what i want to do and then you know um, we have faculty who's in human-centered computing whose research area is how do you teach coding to elementary school students i think you're going to find more and more students are going to learn how to code in second third fourth grades yeah. because to them it's just another language and kids learn other languages much easier than adults do. Right, right. I think you're also going to find that that uh, computer programming will become more common in high school. There is an AP computer science class now that students can take, but I don't think it's that's as widely adopted as as you said. I think over time it will become more common. Yeah. Some discussion of should we have an AP engineering class? You may see more of that over the next several years, particularly as we have to grow our domestic pipeline of STEM graduates to fill the jobs that are gonna be created in this country. Yeah. I think you mentioned the classes that trip up students. For me, it was, it was biology because I realized in biology that I 
wasn't great at memorizing things. And it was a lot of, especially in pre-med biology, a lot of memorization, you know, mm -hmm. I, I was like, absolutely didn't like that. I'm like, I'd rather just figure stuff out. <laughs> uh, and that's where the computer side came in. Yeah. You know, it's funny, you can sort of divide engineers and computer scientists in two camps, those that like biology and those that like physics. Yeah. <laughs> Rule-based and biology is very uh, much memorization. Right, right. I've put me in the physics camp. Although I, me too. That was a, physics was pretty tough too, I remember. As, as an engineer yourself, what are you most excited in the engineering world? Like what, what kind of things and new developments are happening in, around in, in any area of engineering that you're excited about? Well, I'm excited about this blurring of the lines between engineering and everything else, particularly engineering and the social sciences. We've done a lot of great work over the last several decades at developing technology, but I think there's a, a tremendous opportunity to look at that interface between engineering and people. If technology is not accessible to everyone, um, then it won't be adopted or it won't be adopted equitably. I think we have tremendous opportunities to improve the quality of human life by bringing engineering to bear on subjects in partnership with subjects that maybe we haven't traditionally worked with, engineering and the arts, uh, engineering and social sciences. I think there's huge opportunities to make healthcare more affordable by bringing engineering and healthcare together. Traditionally, engineering's worked at improving diagnostics or therapeutics, but I think affordability is gonna be a huge issue through developments associated with uh, telemedicine and, and uh, even some automated home testing and helping people live at home longer. I mean, it, one of the things COVID taught us is that the nursing homes are tremendously vulnerable to viruses like COVID. We're gonna have to find some ways to reduce the density in nursing homes. And one way to do that is to allow more people to live at home longer through technology. So I hope that over the next couple of decades, we'll see more engineering brought to bear on that topic. I think there's tremendous opportunity there. So I'm going to put on my, uh, my Florida hat here for a minute. Cause awesome. I, want, I want to talk, even though it's a baseball hat and I know we've got a great baseball team, but I want to talk a little Gator football with you because okay. uh, when we first met, we were watching the um, university of Florida play the football team play Tennessee in, in the swamp there. And um, I, I found out that you are a very knowledgeable football fan. And I don't know if I'm knowledgeable. I, I grew up in Texas, so you know, football is like part of the religion there. No, I I think you're you're selling yourself short. And I so, but what I, one of one of the bummers about this whole thing for me is that I was really excited about our team because we were looking really good last year, and mm -hmm. I think we're finally coming back in football a little bit. And um, and I think this team coming in this year was looking pretty strong. So, what you know, you think we're going to see them in in the fall? I think they'll play football. I don't know when. I would not be surprised to see them playing football starting in January and playing baseball, right. basketball, or playing basketball and football in the same season. Really? I think the fall may be a little problematic. Yeah. It may be a little too soon, but I, I could definitely see them starting in January. They may even have a shortened season, you know, ditch the non-conference and just play the conferences and get to the championship. Right, right. Yeah, you know. That, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I was excited about the team too. You know, this this was it was set up pretty well for us because Georgia lost their quarterback and we've had some stability now at quarterback and uh, it was looking pretty good. Our defense was looking pretty good. So it, it still may be a great year. You know, and this may not be Alabama's year. LSU lost Joe Burrow, so. Right, right. Yeah, I think our schedule was pretty 
favorable as mm -hmm. well uh, with the home home matchups and road matchups. I know that the NCAA yesterday, I think, said that that football and basketball can start working out teams and, and college can start working out uh, June 1st, I think. Um, so they're definitely at least setting themselves up for the possibility of coming mm -hmm. back. But I think, yeah, I mean, you, you'd have to, the best bet would be to start earlier and to finish earlier and play a shorter schedule. If, if mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the problem, other you also have those, you got to have people on campus to play sports. If you're not letting other students come back, it's going to be hard to bring your athletes back. Right. So you have to look at which schools are not opening up. I mean, if the California schools don't bring students back, for example, some of them, I don't know how you play football and not have the students there. It's hard to claim they're student athletes. Right. I think in the Southeast, a lot of schools are reopening. Alabama's reopening Florida. So I don't think you'll have that issue, but you may have some issues like that on the West coast. Well, in Florida, it's pretty warm there till, uh, I don't know, even December. So <laughs> you yeah. don't have that problem, but, uh, you right. think if they do play football and it was campuses are students are on campus because that's the plan right now, right? So it brings students back. Mm -hmm then will there be students in the stands? I don't know. It's hard for me to see how you get students to social distance. They don't do it when they go downtown. I don't think they do it in the swamp. Right. Maybe, maybe you would have a reduced density and allow some folks in. I don't know if you've seen the pictures of Korean baseball, but instead of, they have a few folks in the stands, but they've got pictures of fans in the stands. So you might oh, yeah. have. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I watched a couple of those Korean games. They were interesting. Dean Abernathy, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. It's been a really fun talking to you today. Thank you for being on Tech Rise, and hopefully I'll get to see you down in Florida real soon. Looking forward to it. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tech Rides podcast. If you like what you heard, please sign up at techrides.io and look for new podcasts and videos down the road. We will be releasing podcast versions of our past videos and also introduce new podcasts on a regular basis. Tech Rides, smart people, sweet rides, where industry leaders ride shotgun.